0: 2020 Velo News Gear Issue is on newsstands now. Check for the very beautiful green color with lots of different pieces of gear on it. We have jackets, tires, tools, sunglasses, gloves, helmets, all the stuff you need to keep you riding and rolling in 2020. What I love about this year's edition of the gear issue, a few different things. First, we have apparel reviews for lots of men's and women's apparel. Full kitted out section for mountain biking, gravel, and road for both men's and women's apparel and gear. You should definitely check it out. We also brought back the how to spend wisely section of the gear issue where we discuss how to. Best spend your dollars on road, mountain, and gravel, no no matter if you have a small, medium, large, or very large budget. We all have those Cyclic friends at the very large budget. Um, Kudos to them. Anyway, it is the VeloNews gear issue. It's on newsstands now. Really beautiful, green cover with lots of different pieces of gear. Get your copy today. Uh, Welcome back to the VeloNews podcast, Fred Dreyer here coming to you a little later in the week than normal. We have had a three day Velo News editorial planning session. Um, earlier this week and we have been in conference rooms with whiteboards and presentations and strategizing all the different ways to bring you the best cycling content in 2020 how to cover the races what to put in the magazine all that fun stuff i'm really excited we had some uh just i don't know really productive brainstorming sessions about what the biggest stories are in cycling and how we want to tell them and uh, we're going to be bringing those to you throughout the year a lot Going on in the world of cycling this week, uh, we debuted our Monuments of Gravel series where we are writing about the five gravel races that have, I would say, it's the most prestige to win. We we went out to, to, to try and find, you know, call out these um, gravel races in North America that the elite gravel racers, people who are in contention to win these races, actually feel carry the most prestige to win. And to try and compare them to the road monuments, because it's a little different, you know, with the road monuments, the five monuments are the oldest, the longest, the hardest races. With gravel, there are harder, longer, older races out there that may not have the uh, amount of prestige that some of the younger, shorter, and uh, more well-attended races are. So, we put it to a vote, and we asked all these people in the gravel scene to name their five, and we have come up with a list so check that out, Monuments of Gravel. Um, but Monuments of Gravel has been uh, overshadowed a bit this week by the news coming out of Europe and the Middle East that this um, growing coronavirus outbreak is now starting to have a major, major impact on pro cycling. Um, I'm coming to you right now. We're talking about this Wednesday morning. And... Strada Bianca, Tirreno-Adriatico, and Milano Sanremo are still technically on. However, I would not be surprised if these races are canceled before they start in the next few days. Um, the UAE Tour was truncated due to coronavirus, um, and a lot of teams right now are putting out statements saying that they do not want to race. We are going to talk about this story with our contributor, Jim Cotton. Jim was over at the UAE Tour. He was covering the race, and he was on the ground when all of a sudden news came down that the race had been canceled. And the entire race caravan, riders, staff, media uh, were going to be quarantined for coronavirus. Jim is going to tell us all about his experience there. Second half of the show, we're going to catch up with Peter Stetna to talk gravel racing, um, what some of his gravel events, favorite gravel events are, what he's expecting to get out of this season. But before that, we're going to catch up with Jim Cotton. Okay, here's Jim. Uh, Jim Cotton's on the line. Jim is our uh, web editor correspondent based in the UK. Jim went out to UAE Tour to cover the race, was doing a great job getting the stories, talking to the elite athletes, getting Chris Froome, doing some cool interviews. And then all of a sudden, uh, we started to hear word that UAE Tour had been canceled with two stages remaining. Jim was on the ground. And Jim, I, I was hoping you could first tell us um what, you know, how did you first find out about this news that UAE tour had been canceled that it was about coronavirus and what, you know, just take take us through those first few hours.
1: Yeah, sure. Hey, Fred from uh, the UK. Um so it all started off uh, late on the Thursday night, which was a night of stage 5 when uh, we just transferred to Abu Dhabi and um we had an email all the press corps had an email from RCS, the race organiser, saying, whatever you do, don't leave the hotel tonight. And it didn't say why. And there was a group chat on WhatsApp, and there was lots of sort of black humour about what it might be. And um, this was at about 10pm, and I just went to bed. And I woke up in the middle of the night and looked at my phone to look at the time, and I saw about... No joke, about a hundred WhatsApp messages on my phone, and the group chat with the reporters revealed that uh, the race had been cancelled um, because of a, a corona outbreak in two team staff or team riders. And um, yeah, that's how I that's how I found out the race was cancelled. And then uh, a few hours later, we were informed by race organisers that um, we couldn't leave our um, our hotel rooms. So, yeah, we were effectively locked in.
0: Were you getting that message via email? Were they tiling you in person, calling you on the phone? How did you get that communication?
1: Well, um, regards to the, uh, the quarantine, it came through an email sent to all the, um, the press. So that was from RCS Sport. So but we already had a kind of uh, an indication it was going to happen through... Uh, once we heard that the race was canceled.
0: I think this is a really important detail of the story here, Jim, because you ended up being quarantined for multiple days in your hotel room. Um, describe for us this hotel room. How, how big was it? Um, what accoutrement did you have in there? Um, and what was your first reaction when you heard that you were not going to be let out of this room?
1: Well, luckily it was a, it was a nice hotel which was good it was a four star so I'll take that as a as a bonus. Um I had quite a quite a swanky room actually. Um had a nice big uh, kind of king-size bed and uh, it had telling most important thing is it had a nice big balcony and like french windows that I could so I could go outside and get some sun. But I know a lot of our colleagues in the press had rooms without um balconies and they couldn't even open the windows so they were just breathing their own air for three days which uh, I imagine wasn't much fun um, yeah so the room was the room was decent to be fair and on the first day when I found out it was it was pretty stressful to be honest uh, just because we had so little communication about how long it might last whether there were, you know there were more cases had been detected since the initial two. Um, and just the kind of the wider context of it all, because we, we effectively knew nothing beyond don't leave. There's two cases of coronavirus in the teams. And that, that was about it.
0: And there's a big difference between having this happen at uh, a race, let's say the classics or the Giro or the tour versus the UAE tour. So at the, uh, the European races, as a reporter, you're kind of on your own. You know, you're, you're covering the race, but you're not like part of the race and you're, you have a lot of freedom. You can kind of come and go as you please. You can stay wherever you want. But at UAE Tour, I was there last year. Um, you are very much at the mercy of the race and to a certain degree, the mercy of the authorities. Um, it's, you know, you are there staying in the race hotel. The race is picking up the tab for all of your expenses. You're almost like a guest of the race and therefore guest of the country. So the first thoughts that I had when this came down was like, oh, poor Jim, like you, you know, there's really, there's not a whole lot you can do. This isn't one of those races where as a reporter, you have a tremendous amount of freedom. This is a race where you are very much um, at the mercy of the decision makers.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, in a way that did make it easier in that you just had to do what you were told, but then it also made it worse because it sounds a bit a uh, bit of a cliche but when you have all of your sort of freedom and decision making taken away from you it's pretty stressful because we were always contacting the race organizers rcs for updates but they literally had no idea because they were reliant on the effectively the state and the state health body and as far as i'm aware they were getting very little communication back from them. so it was a kind of a, a chain of of poor communication, really.
0: So, Jim, you did a fantastic job of chronicling your experience in a few different posts on VeloNews' website, and I recommend listeners go and read Jim's uh, first-person accounts of what it was like to be on lockdown. But for the listeners, take us through... The first few days, as you're on lockdown, how are you getting information? And then talk to us about uh, the moment in which you are told um, it is now time for you to be tested for coronavirus.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I guess on, on day one, we were we were just told, you know, you're on lockdown because because of this risk of coronavirus, and uh, that was uh, kind of really early, in the early hours of the morning, and the this whatsapp group chat that i was on with all of the 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 reporters on the race just went absolutely insane like you know if you lock 30 uh, kind of journalists in a room with a laptop then they're gonna start researching as much as they can and all these rumors were flying around all this information was flying around about what was happening and that almost made it slightly more stressful with like the information overload and um of course, because we couldn't leave the rooms, we, we couldn't eat. Uh, so once I'd eaten all the biscuits that we get given free and drunk all the free little sachets of coffee, I was reliant on um, kind of room service. We got room service, and on day one, it was effectively like a kid's lunchbox because obviously the hotel wasn't prepared for having to make, like, kind of deliver sort of packed lunches to all these hotel rooms. So, yeah, so that was that sucked pretty bad so like having to eat all this rubbish food and um yeah on the first day that was it we were just stuck in the room and the only real contact we got was when we got a box of food thrown through the door um and then the second day which was um saturday we were told we were going to be tested for coronavirus so that was in the morning um and we were just simply told you know you'll get a phone call to your room when you do come down to the basement and you'll get tested and my call came about three or four in the afternoon, uh, at which point I was, I was kind of summoned to the basement. And you,
0: again, you wrote, you wrote about this, uh, in your column, we did not disclose the details of your coronavirus test as you had signed a waiver saying you wouldn't do so. And you were still in the clutches of our friends at RCS sport. And, um, our our friends at the uae tour now that you're free and back home i think you're free to tell the full story of what it was like going down there to get uh, tested what you saw and and how the test went down
1: yeah sure so um well the first the first point which is something that still sort of makes me laugh a little is uh it was Mauro Vengi who was doing all the all the administration of the forms so i went down there and I had to fill out a piece of paper with my name and my passport number and all this stuff. And Mauro was there, you know, the man who plans the Giro d'Italia and stuff and, you know, plans Milano San Remo, and he was there sort of taking down everybody's names and stuff, which just shows what a hands-on operation it had to be. So anyway, once I'd done all that admin, we effectively went through to a little room where staff from the Abu Dhabi Health Authority, they they basically get a big, long... Cotton bud. I think you guys call them Q-tips, is that right? Yep. Yeah, uh, they basically get one and they ram it up your nostril like pretty hard. It feels like it's kind of poking your brain and they sort of rub it around a bit and then they do the same. They up uh, the other nostril as well, you know, po- slam it up there and rub it around and then they just put it in um, sort of a test tube marked with all our details and, and that was it. And then we... We got our results around 24 hours later, perhaps. And in this time,
0: as you're waiting for coronavirus uh, results, I mean, are you like every time you sneeze or cough or have a headache, are you feeling paranoid? I mean, like, are you retracing your steps? Who was I in contact with? I know that's what I would be doing, but I'm curious how you reacted to the, you know, 24 or 48 hour period in which you didn't actually know if you had come in contact with coronavirus.
1: To be honest, like I don't want to sort of diminish the the problem but it didn't I wasn't really worried about contracting the actual illness and from speaking to riders for the reporting I did, they weren't so worried either because you know, if you're young, fit and healthy, which I'm reasonably young, fit and healthy, then you you should be you know, get over it pretty easily if you do get it. I was a bit concerned when I woke up in the morning and my nose was like running and really sore. But then I managed to piece together that was because I'd had a, you know, a a Q-tip like rammed up there the night before. The thing that worried me more, to be honest, was the first thing that popped into my head was these other situations where people had been in quarantine for 14 days. And which is now the situation for some of the teams, purely because I I didn't want to be you know, locked in a hotel room on my own for 14 days, it would would get a bit miserable. But I would have got a lot of work done, though, because I would have had nothing else to do.
0: Now, you did some great outreach during the uh, few days in which you were on quarantine to the other riders and staffers and people like that who were also on lockdown. It sounds like some of the riders declined to talk... Uh, the teams may have imposed orders of, Hey, you know, let's, let's keep this information to ourselves right now. Um, but you were able to get Adam Hansen on a call and ask him about what his experience was like. What can you say about, um, Adam and the Lato Soudal riders and how they were weathering this storm?
1: Well, um, I can't really speak so much. The other riders, but well, I I did ask Adam what the morale's like in the team, and he said in general they were pretty, pretty calm. And Adam himself, you know, he's a long, long time veteran of uh, of the sport, and he's he's quite, he's a very sort of intelligent character. He was, he was super calm about it. To be honest, his like me, his wider concern was about the impact on his season and how long he was going to be stuck there uh, because all these teams that were in quarantine, you know, they didn't have access to their, their trainers. They couldn't leave to use the hotel gyms and things like that. Um, and I think the main issue for the teams was similar to the issue for the reporters in that they just didn't have a clue what was happening and they were at the will of other people.
0: Interesting. Um, Jim, your story then took a bit of a turn in that you were cleared to leave Every, you know, a lot of media staff, their test come back negative. You're cleared to leave. Um, some people left immediately. You waited for the, uh, shuttle to take you to the airport. And during that time, the story changed and your quarantine went on a bit longer than anticipated. Take us through this section of your, uh, experience. Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, up to, up to that point, that you just referred to I was pretty calm and I was just like yeah you know it'll it'll be over because I we were cleared to leave on the same day that we were going to leave anyway whether the race had occurred and whether the outbreak had occurred or not so I was due to get a shuttle bus to the airport at uh, 5 a.m on the Sunday I think it was Sunday yeah so I Got up, went down there, and there was about fifteen of us uh, all on the same shuttle. And effectively, as we when we went to leave with the race organisers, we were sort of we were sort of locked in by state health authorities and kind of the hotel security, and they were told, you know, we we were told you're not leaving you the. we're still sort of waiting on results from the test or or something along those lines. And they were saying, you know, you can't leave until we get the final official paperwork about test results. And until you can prove you've got a valid boarding pass. So we were like, um, okay, that's not really what we understood before. And we had no choice, but to go back to our hotel rooms again. So that was in the early hours of the morning. And then we, uh, we actually got a, a call at midday literally saying come down now it's time to go we can go now and this was from the race organizers and i'm not quite sure what sort of brought this sudden act about but we, we all went down there again uh, to get these buses to the ho- to the airport and again we weren't allowed out um and it was only um late that night that we were finally given the all clear and that was because the test results had come through so the big the big question mark with regards to the reporter's situation is why were we initially told we could go on and it was suggested that we would had a you know an all clear test result but it later turned out that apparently at that moment in time we hadn't so it's a bit of question mark there
0: (laughs) When you look back at the entire ordeal, what are some takeaways that you think would be uh, of interest to the wider general public of your experience being quarantined for this?
1: I don't know, really. Um, I guess with regards to how to sort of manage the whole wider coronavirus situation is to, I guess, is to take it more seriously. Than you you may do initially because like most people i it, it's one of those situations that you think will never happen to you and sure enough it it did and um i guess you've just got to always be vigilant for it but if you do get uh stuck in a in a quarantine somewhere make sure make sure um you, you're good at push-ups and sit-ups because you, you end up doing quite a lot of them over the uh, over the period because you've got little else to do
0: Well, Jim, you did great reporting over there at UAE Tour. I, uh, you know, uh, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. When I sent you on this uh, assignment, I was really looking forward to, you know, having you come back and hear tales of your experience at the race and getting to interview all these riders. And when, you know, it sounded like your experience was going to be now about being locked in a hotel room, not knowing if you were ever going to leave UAE, I felt – somewhat personally responsible for sending you into this (laughs) melee, but I'm glad to hear that you've made it back to Britain and that you're okay and healthy and that, um, you know, you did your work very admirably admirably as a reporter and you're going to have stories to tell your friends and family for years to come.
1: For sure, yeah. I'll I'll certainly remember the experience more than the sprint finishes and the Jebba Peak climb, that's, that's for sure. So, you know, you've got to take a positive out of everything.
0: All right, Jim Cotton, you can read his reporting on VeloNews.com. We are still uh, monitoring the situation with coronavirus and its impact on world tour cycling. Um, Stay tuned to VeloNews.com for all of that news. Okay, we're going to check in with Peter Stetna to talk gravel right after this. My next guest on the news podcast is Pete Stetna, the man who ruined gravel. <laughs> Pete is uh, in his first full-time season as a gravel racer, with a portfolio of wonderful sponsors, a column on Velonews.com, video series. <laughs> what else do you have, Pete? What else? What other media
2: and uh, special projects are you working on this year? It's yeah, man. It's been fun. I'm. Uh... I'm having a damn good time, but I've been really busy. It's like, it's literally starting a new business. Yeah.
0: Pete, we connected on a phone call the other day talking about what it means to be a professional gravel racer. And something that stood out was all of the non-gravel related jobs and activities you have to do as part of your daily life. Take the listeners through what it entails to be a privateer gravel racer off the bike.
2: Oh, you know, now you're just, uh, I mean, it's you know, I think, you know, there's this universal truth that, you know, everyone doing this is more or less a privateer. You know, we're all sourcing our own gear and getting ourselves to these races and whether or not you have one sponsor, multiple sponsors, or just a bike discount at your back, you know, you're trying to like make ends meet and and try to, you're doing you out there. Um, so I, I think a lot of people can hopefully relate to it. And, um, it's just been, it's just been all that startup stuff, like just trying to, to show to a, a, another audience you know because i my audience before was mostly the world tour road stuff um just what this cool scene is and and how fun this is and i mean yeah just to, to i mean i'm all in in this now like <laughs> there's no going back to the world tour road for me so it's like you know hopefully this thing takes off and it, it stays stays good and fun and and viable and um and uh, i'm just trying to to show that uh, show show my passion and, and this is my outlet now. So when you're going to a sponsor,
0: let's say, and you're yeah. selling them on your gravel racing program, like what are the types of things you're showing
2: them? What are the type of like assets or schedules or what do you what are you showing them? You know, I'm I'm a uh, all a bunch of things. You know, and it's it's about finding sponsors that you know their message rings true to you. You know, it's I realized you know pretty quickly like you know I'm basically you know I'm. My, I'm my brand. I'm my own business, and so you know, you got to find a partner that that jives with that idea, and whether that's performance or creativity or whatever, you know. Um, so I've been lucky enough that I found enough uh, sponsors who who fit in with what I'm trying to do, and um, and just this uh, this new discovery, and still, you know, I'm. I'm unabashedly still training and and racing these things. Like I, I love that world and I love that process. So, you know, I'm definitely performance driven, but at the same time, like I want to have fun with it. You want to win these races though, right? Oh yeah. I mean, they're races and they're competition and you know, and that's, that's actually another bone. I, I do have to pick with some people that, um, I mean, these are a competition, right? And, and whether you're competing against yourself or with others, however you define competition, That's what these are. So if you show up to these races and you're just la-di-da, like I'm out here smelling the flowers, like, I don't know. For me, like, that's almost doing a disservice to the event too. Like, there's a lot of people that train their ass off all year just to finish BWRDK. So, I mean, I'm going to – hell yes, I'm going to try my hardest. That's what I came here for. Why would I travel and spend all this money and put all this sweat equity and trainer time in and and bike time and, and sponsor obligation time to just go, like, pedal around and like have a nice day out there too. You know, it's, (laughs) it's kind of not really the point for me. So as a world tour racer,
0: Pete, you know, typically you were racing anywhere from 70 to 80 days a year. Yeah. um, Stage races, one day races, hilly races all over Europe, all over the United States. Now as a gravel racer, it's, I, I looked at your 2020 racing schedule and it's fewer races. Yeah. But the goal remains the same, which is to try and stay fit, win races, I'm curious, how do you schedule training and performance around a fewer number of races um, knowing that you're not
2: going to have these blocks of, like, you know, road yeah. stage racing in there to boost your fitness? You know, I that's the big question right now. We, the season early hasn't kicked off yet. Um, it's, you know, y- y- I will say, you know, I do want a race and be competitive, but I know I ain't going to win or even podium in a lot of things. And it's, you know, the – the the competition is a priority for me and and being the best i can be personally but at the same time like very close secondary is just embracing this community and and the love of of two-wheeled adventure with everyone so i'm not out there just to race cutthroat either you know (laughs) and some people really i don't know maybe some people really believe i am ruining gravel but I'm trying. <laughs> my only goal is to get there before everyone so I can drink all your beers. But are you doing um, anything different from a training perspective? Yeah. This so year? sorry. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's weird that it's less total race days, but it's more individual races. So, I mean, with a very few exceptions, you know, I'm a one-day racer now. There's the Oregon Trail Gravel Grinder in Rebecca's Private Idaho, which are stage races. And I'm stoked because that's my bread and butter. Like, that's what I know how to do day after day. Um and I can't wait to get stuck in those and be camping instead of in a hotel in Europe or something. Um, but, you know, the rest of it is uh, there's so many events and they are all so awesome and they are all so different. And I want to do them all. And my wife does not want me to do them all. <laughs> so it's definitely been just like kind of like looking at a calendar, looking at, at you know, uh, lifestyle. That's the number one is where I want to go, what towns I want to see, what style of race they are what the vibe is around them just experience it all feel it all um and then uh and then like i know you can't you can't hold a season-long peak i mean no one can so i mean there's definitely highlights in the calendar and those are the big dogs the the BWRs, the dks the the lead boat challenge um but i mean there's some other events that just person like on a personal note i am beyond over the moon like i actually i'm almost more stoked for like the Iceland rift or the Oregon gravel grinder stage racer or something. So how have you decided which events to say no to? I'm learning how to say no. I'm really bad at that. And it's, um, you know, I, I, basically built out a calendar, uh, just looking at, at some of the big hits and it was, it was a conversation with, you know, sponsor requests, for example, you know, Canyon bikes are sponsoring the Belgian waffle rides and SBT. Um, and, so, you know, there's – and, you know, for example, like Lost and Found, like Cliff Bar has a big say in that. And I'm going to go there. And that's also close to home. So, um, but then, you know, I started looking at the calendar and it's so West Coast heavy. Myself being, you know, growing up in Colorado and now living in California. Like I know East Coast gravel's a thing and I don't know any East Coast gravel. So, then I started, you know, I reached out to the the Vermont Overland guys and and they're amazing and fun. and um, And then I was able to link that into the – a whole east coast trip with the the new bwr Asheville the week after so it's kind of just like a whole like you know 10-day trip on the east coast so it's kind of just building out i was trying to look at the calendar almost like uh logistically mm-hmm. like kind of just see how how the the travel would flow and then um and you mix that in with sponsor requests and and personal desire What about performance desire at any of those? I mean, are you creating,
0: you know, you have your like tier one races, tier two races, that type of stuff that you're building your season around?
2: Yeah. You know, and and it's, um, yeah, I want to do well and I'm definitely going to try to peak for for certain ones in the year. But, you know, I'm I'm also just going to try to always be fit and and generally ready to rock and, and have a good time. And, you know, if I... And that's the thing, like, you know, you're going to show up and the best you can do because gravel is it's so challenging and fickle and it's such a strain on, on your equipment and your body. Like, like I know there's going to be a day when I'm walking in four or five hours behind the winner and it's like, you know, that's I'm also going to crack a beer then with everybody and have a good time. Like, that's just that's the name of the game. So it's, you know, but as long as you are at the line knowing you've done the most you can, then you can be the the race is a whole nother Entity after the preparation. And that's kind of how I'm
0: looking at it. Okay, yeah, I'm going to ask you a couple of road biking questions. I had some of these questions for Ian as well too, which is that you know you both were guys that had these long and uh, successful careers in world tour road racing, came up through the system. Uh, you know, were young riders, U20 juniors, U23s, competing at a high level. And just as a fan of the sport, I always would get excited when I'd see young, talented Americans coming up mm-hmm. in road bike racing to see what they would do and accomplish in hmm. the sport um as excited as i am that you guys have gone to gravel and are opening up this new racing format and doing stuff that's going to be in north america in the united states and give us something to to you know follow here there's part of me that's a little bummed out of the loss of americans in the world tour especially really talented americans who oh, thanks <laughs> could have done something um what were your thoughts around that? I mean, you know, America. So few Americans in the world tour. You were one. You had the opportunity to stay in it, and you decided to go away. I mean, did you did you um, did you think of that as at all taking
2: away from the American push in the European world tour? I think the American contingent is still pretty strong. You know, and TJ's perennially strong, per- perennially strong. Um, Sep is maybe the most amazing climber a U.S. has seen since Andy Hampston, you know, it's, we're in a good spot. Um, and you know, it was a hard decision to make. I mean, there were still goals that I had in world tour road racing. I mean, I, I definitely have a few regrets, but at the same time I had more goals and desire in this snow realm. And this was just something that I had to pursue and, and kind of just mentally close that chapter just saying, you know what? like, world tour road has been great. It's defined my career. I've had a great run. Um, I've accomplished a lot. There's some things that I didn't accomplish, but you know, do I really want to, you know, bang my head against a wall and just like race for breakaways for a potential stage win, maybe in a breakaway, like in, in a grand tour, right? Like that would be huge. But at the same time, like, okay, I personally want that, but am I like, Am I going to sacrifice years and this whole other opportunity, this whole new world that has my, that's the apple of my eye at the moment for that. And like, I mean, and to be honest, like, I mean, if I, at this point in my career, I mean, I'm not old, I'm 32. So I'm in my prime, but like, if I won a stage of a grand tour, like financially too, is that going to make a big difference for me at this moment? Like, probably not. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a known quantity to the world tour directors, I mean, it was like I had a very stable and comfortable environment there being a, you know, a big mountain domestique and it's great. But at the same time, like I I think I was probably getting a little stagnant there, too. What advice then would you have for the Americans who are coming up behind
0: you, the um, young guys who have ambitions in the world tour and want to have long careers? I mean, what what advice would you pass along to them?
2: Oh, I mean, I, I have I mean, I did it for over a decade and I have nothing but respect for that. I mean, that's a hard freaking life is that that pursuit of pure speed and bodily perfection, right? That is, you know, and that's something I'll talk about actually in my next fellow news article on the road trip. But it's just, you know, the, the world tour, um, the, the, it's a very, it's one of the most difficult jobs in the world, but it's also one of the simplest I mean, you are – it's it's a very selfish existence. You focus on you, your body, what you need to ultimately go a little bit faster on the bike and all those marginal gains. And everything else has to be secondary. And I honestly respect a lot of guys that that want to do that. But for me at this point, like I don't want to do – like I have these other desires and there's there's more to cycling – than just that for me mm-hmm. and, it's, and it really is just about what is cycling to you you know like that, that's kind of the i mean this predates even my gravel move but when i created this grand fondo in tahoe it was the whole format was you find you strike it rich in cycling however that means for you whether that's racing your buddies whether that's just finishing whether that's smashing a beer and a sandwich at a coffee stop or whatever you know and that's that's where I'm enjoying it now, but you know, for all these guys who are cutting it, like power to them. I mean, I think U.S. road cycling—we don't, we don't have the numbers of Spain, but we're strong. So, you know, the event that
0: started this all for you uh, was the Belgian Waffle Ride.
2: Yeah, you raced
0: it in 2019. You won it. Um, and I remember talking to you at the tour of California afterwards and you said, dude, I've never gotten so much like media attention blew my mind for a bike race that I've ever done. Um, first of all, like, you talk to me about that let's dr- let's <laughs> drill into that um yeah. what what take me what happens to you after you in the belgian waffle ride like who is calling and wh- why were you so blown away by the the media you sponsorship know, and all this stuff that seemed to open up for you
2: i mean i went to the belgian waffle ride for you know it was it was a buddy in santa rosa who was like man you got to check this thing out it's super fun it's it's like all these adventure races you know the the bike monkey and the grasshopper series that's small and local, but like this is big. And I was like, yeah, you know, like, it's one of the big gravel races. You know, I'm gonna yeah, like I wanna try it. And I in the race, like, I mean, there was like, you know, a car with the media, you know, they have a movie produced now. Like it's a full like forty five minute film or whatever. And and then afterwards at the finish, you know, you're whisked away real quick behind like this green screen and shoved beer and waffles in your face and they take the pictures and you're all grimy and and like all the production value around it without, you know, this isn't even me winning. It was just like, I was blown away. Like this was better and more professional than 90% of the pro races I've done in Europe. I was just like, Holy cow. And it was, it was so cool. And, and, and it was and most importantly, like I was just having fun and I was able to be me and, you know, drink a beer and, you know, catch up with Dave Zabriskie at the expo and, and meet a bunch of new people and just be, it was, it was great. And then, yeah, the, 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 I don't know if fallout's the right word, but the, whatever happened after that, it was just, it was crazy. Like, you know, you could, the social media metrics were unbelievable. And then it was like, even in the tour of California, like on these big ass climbs, all of a sudden, like I'd be climbing up, you know, and, and Richie would be ahead, like winning the race and, Or going for it, you know, and we would worked all day to set them up and guys would just be yelling like, Belgian waffle winner, yeah. And they were I mean, I was like, holy cow, like people really care about this, you know? And I yeah, it just I mean, and that was that's what really kind of got the gears going, is just, you know, that that experience at BWR, I think I have to say at the moment, like that's my favorite gravel race because that was that initial love. Like that's what ticked it for me into like what I am doing now. And, and, and Dirty Kansas and Leadville were confirmations of that. But BWR for me, like that was, you know, that was like the first love.
0: What is it about the BWR course that makes it so challenging when you think about that course, the hills, the dirt, the whatever, what, what's the
2: hardest thing about that race? Oh, it's such a masochistic event. Like, I mean, it is so weird. I've gotten to know that area a bit more now. And it's like, it literally is a headwind both ways. I don't know how it happens, but it does, and it's so. Basically, the BWR is you know, and, and actually, Michael Marks, the the uh, organizer, like he doesn't call it gravel. You know, it's and in gravel right now, we're using this term. It's it's a whole movement, right? It's a lifestyle. It's not a terrain anymore at the moment. Um, but I mean, so he builds it as a spring classic. It is a lot more of a, a road race vibe to it, but. It is basically 70 or 60% road and then just these rough, gnarly, like, single track sectors instead of, like, cobblestones of Roubaix or whatever. And then it's really freaking hilly and there's, like, this massive double percent climb, you know, like, 14% kicker towards the final. And it's kind of got all these ingredients. I would say the BWR is like a – it's like the Ardennes mixed with single track sectors. Mm -hmm. It's crazy, yeah. Yeah, it's funny we talked to
0: Michael about that. Yeah, it's not a gravel race, but I'm with you. And I think about it culturally; it aligns with gravel, and yeah. it's a lot of the same athletes, just like the Leadville. Yeah, it's yeah. mass participant, so yep. everyone's starting together. But the thing that stands out to me is those those sections of single track and gravel. Like you would never be able to put those in a sanctioned road race. Oh no! And that <laughs> to me is like, okay, this is this is a yeah. You know, this counts as alt racing, gravel, whatever you want yeah. to call it, because there's no way that that would ever fly yeah. as like a traditional road yeah. bike race.
2: I know. I think, I think honestly, Michael Marks probably ruined gravel because that's not a proper gravel oh. race. That is, <laughs> you got to blame him on that one. <laughs> what are the
0: memories that stand out from that race? Um, you know, now almost a year later, what's
2: most vivid? Um, man, I mean the pain, first of all, like it was, I went deep, really deep there. I was really surprised Um, And I was actually personally, I was more, I was, I was screwed up for longer after that than after Kansas because whereas Kanza was pure gravel grinding, just like emptying the tank and slogging and, and just the ultimate test of endurance, like BWR was rate, it was a tax, it was high power. There was, there was more muscle damage there. Um, um, But you know, what, what really stands out to me was. Just the the expo and the vibe around it, and the the parties in the woods. There was like you know the bacon hand ups and and the waffles, and then just the whole like party in the brewery. That you literally finish like at a brewery with the doors rolled up. It's super fun. So it was it was more the auxiliary events around it than even the event. And then it was just you know you're coming in full speed on the road into these single track packs, these single track dirt path sections on a road bike. Just like, all right, hold on. Here we go. Buckle up. (laughs) You know, and that was, it was pretty wild. So this year on the gravel scene, we're going to
0: see a number of strong guys and gals, you know, um, it's yourself, Colin Strickland, Ian Boswell, probably EF is going to be sending more riders. Mm-hmm. Ah, Quinn Simmons has said he's going to race Dirty Kansas. Mm. There's going to be a number of really strong riders, specifically at Dirty Kansas this year. Yeah, I mean, what are you anticipating to see at that race
2: this year? At Dirty Kansas specifically? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, Kansas is such a unique event. Uh, you, I mean, I've only done it once, obviously, but you can tell it is. I mean, I don't think anyone who's really focusing on this gravel thing wants it to become road racing off-road. I don't want that. I love what it is. Um, And so, you know, I I don't think and I hope there was not going to start becoming team tactics and pacing and chasing back on with it. I I don't know, you know, but um, I'm a privateer. I don't have a teammate. (laughs) Maybe any die or someone shit. Um, But uh, it's going to be it's so long. And something goes wrong for everybody out there. That it's still you. Just you got to do you. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna be alone at some point out there. There's there's no two ways about it. So, um,
0: so my favorite Kansas story from last year. Well, other than the, the battle between you and Colin, though, was
2: the disc wheel story. <laughs> oh man, we almost really ruined gravel there. That was bad. <laughs> Let's hear it. Oh, Tell us the disc wheel story. You know, it was. Yeah, it's the wild west in terms of innovation the uci doesn't have a stranglehold on this hopefully never yet i mean and and we had a freaking disc wheel yep and we tried riding it uh the day before and we just kept puncturing it and and you know to fill it up again like you need like the little they call it like the crack pipe that you like shove in the disc hole and like it was difficult and if you went through a stream crossing in case it was wet like the whole disc was going to fill with water and you know so it was like we just talked and key and, you know, there's the whole arrow bar thing was raging, which was just Twitter trolling. And 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 we were like, all right, like, you know, like, only let's like leave it in, in the inside the car. And like only if let's say like, you know, that second checkpoint, let's let's just say like you're going to be down by like three to five minutes. And like you're like, all right, this is the last dash hope like we're going for it. Then we'll whip it out. And lo and behold, what the hell happens? Like Colin is three to five minutes in front of me at that last checkpoint. <laughs> so I was just like, Wayne, Wayne's my mechanic. Wayne, let's go get that wheel. Let's go. <laughs> like, But then like I was, it, I just, it, it wasn't, it was going to slow the wheel change. We had to fully pull off the cassette. We didn't have the right mm. cassette for it because I was running this big dog 48 up front single ring and I needed some real teeth in the back. And uh, it was just I had to get going, you know, so... And and it was... Yeah. So, it didn't happen. Um, It's pretty funny, though. But, I mean, at the same time, like, okay, like, how... Is that more pro and, like, aerodynamic or is that more, like, Tomac style? You know, like, I don't know. Like...
0: I think okay. you could have spun it.
2: I think you could have spun it the right could've, way. Maybe if I put on like a cut off T shirt and then rode the disc wheel, <laughs> would that be okay?
0: <laughs> that, would be that would not be ruining gravel. So, uh, last question for you, Pete, and, and I mean, it's the big one. It's like you know the the traditional vibe of gravel is about community and about inclusivity, and you know you're coming in and you want to win these races and you're unabashed about it. Um, and and there are these fears of road racers coming in and road tactics and gravel becoming too serious i mean how do you reconcile that how what do you tell people you know your your joke is that pete is ruining gravel but like yeah. what do you really tell people who actually have concerns about you and wanting to win races uh coming into this scene
2: oh i mean it's like i said before i mean it's a competition it's you know but at, and at the same time like i'm out here to enjoy the community of cycling and like I, i've said it just as much as I, you know, Pete ruining gravel is just like beer is great for celebrating and it's great for commiserating. And we're all going to go through something extreme together and it's going to be wild and it's going to suck and it's going to be awesome. And we're going to have a beer afterwards together and we're going to talk about it and have a good time and celebrate that. And, and I want to do that with everyone. And, but yeah, like for me, like, you know, I'm lucky that I can ride a bike pretty quick, you know, but at the same time, like I, I want to do this for the same reason that everyone else is doing this. And I am not – I mean, <laughs> don't worry. I ain't showing up with a team bus and a massage therapist and all that. Like that's, you know, I – unless, yeah, maybe I can figure out a way to put like a, a motor in my bike or something. Okay. UCI is not here yet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, no, you know, it's just – this is the, the new – yeah, this, it's just – it's gravel – it's changing, you know, and it's, it's a new frontier for a lot of us, you know, and that's, there's this, you know, everyone's kind of finding their way in it together. Um, and yeah, there's guys who are uber competitive and, and cool about it and not cool about it. And at the same time, like I got to sit down with a lot of these organizers, um, at, in Scottsdale, Arizona a few weeks ago. And like, I, I, the thing I took away is like, Gravel can't be ruined because the, the heads of state the the key players in this game, they care too damn much. They are the ones that are really invested in it. And yeah, of course they want to see it grow and, and this is their livelihood too now as race organizers, but they're in it for the fun. They're in it for, for everybody, not just the pros and, and media coverage. So it's you know, it's I mean, they they have the right motives at heart. So I'm not so worried about it. Well, Pete, we can see you out there at the races. Best of luck out there. And yeah. please read Pete's uh, columns on com. Yeah, thanks. And I know Old Man Winter is in 48 hours here in snowy Boulder. And uh, I don't know. I'm I'm having... <laughs> It'll be a wild ride. I think I might have to put a little bourbon in my bottles to keep it from, uh, from uh, freezing. You're going to have but... a disc on your uh, bike for Old Man Winter. Oh, maybe that's a good thing, Pete. Road winner. Well, you know, I have that canyon uh, double handlebar now, so I'm actually trying to find a way to put four aero bars on it. I think you can find a way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thanks, Pete.
0: Yeah.